You are listening to Thick Thighs and Murder Vibes, a true crime podcast. Each episode will take you down the rabbit hole as we dive deep into real-life murders, unsolved mysteries, and sinister crimes. Join us as we uncover untold pieces of the puzzle to give you all the dark and juicy details. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Hello, and welcome to our first episode of Thick Thighs and Murder Vibes. We're your hosts. I'm Tara, and I've always been a fan of all things spooky and mysterious and true crime related, of course. I'm sure it might have something to do with past life and childhood trauma, but it definitely keeps things interesting. I'm Shana. My journey into true crime came about when I was working at my brother-in-law's jewelry shop, and I decided to start listening to a podcast one day about mysterious crimes. I don't even remember what it was called, Um, but it had popped up on my Spotify feed as a suggestion, and I thought it sounded kind of interesting. And then that's when my bonus daughter's mom, Stevie, heyo, suggested I listen to Crime Junkie, and that's where it all started for me. But enough about us. We are excited to be here. And obviously, if you're listening, you're just as interested in true crime as we are. Or maybe you're just bored and have nothing better to listen to. Either way, you're listening. And for that, we thank you. With it being Easter, we have decided to kick things off with a familiar side case that took place on Easter morning in 1975. So I dug up some facts. Uh, If you don't already know, a familicide is a type of murder in which one kills multiple close family members in quick succession, most often children, spouses, siblings, or parents. In half the cases, the killer lastly kills themselves in a murder-suicide. If all members of a family are killed, the crime may be referred to as family annihilation. I couldn't find many statistics or facts about familicide cases in general, But the most recent study I could find was done in 1994 by the Bureau of Justice, claiming that 16% of murders were committed by family members. Jesus. A lot of resentment. (laughs) I'll say so. (laughs) A little bit about the history of Easter. Easter was named after the pagan goddess Istra, the goddess of spring and fertility. According to Wikipedia, Easter, or Resurrection Sunday, is a Christian festival and cultural holiday commemorating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, described in the New Testament as having occurred on the third day of his burial following his crucifixion by the Romans at Calvary. Uh, The pagan origins of Easter come from a celebration of the spring equinox for the pagans. In 325 AD, the church councils first decided that Easter's celebration should fall on the Sunday after the full, first full moon of the spring equinox. And thus, Easter Sunday was born. And symbols associated with nature's rebirth and renewal came to be associated with the rebirth and resurrection of Christ. That's how some Easter traditions originated. Eggs are a symbol of new life and rebirth just as nature returns to life after the cold of winter or Jesus is resurrected after the crucifixion. The sacred symbol of the goddess Istra was a hare, and rabbits have long been considered a symbol of fertility due to their ability to reproduce quickly and in large numbers. Hot cross buns are another pagan tradition. These were taken from the Saxons, who would bake fresh bread in honor of the goddess Estra. The fresh buns would be marked with a cross. At the time, the cross represented the four quarters of the moon, four seasons, and wheel of life. And now, obviously, the cross is a Christian symbol. (laughs) 
So that's all I have for facts. So let's get into our story. So our case today takes place at 635 Minor Avenue in Hamilton, Ohio, the scene of the deadliest family massacre in American history. James Urban Rupert was born March 29, 1934. His early life was sad and abusive. His mother, Charity, often called him a mistake because she had wanted a daughter. His father, Leonard, was a violent man with a quick temper and didn't show any affection to James or his older brother, Leonard Jr. Their father died in 1947 when James was 12 and Leonard Jr. was 14. Leonard Jr. became the head of the family, and according to James, his brother picked on him incessantly. It was known that James did poorly in school, had very few friends, and was always smaller than his brother. Side note, as an adult, James was only 5'6 and 135 pounds, so not a very big guy. Some would say that James was easily bullied, and that's just what his older brother did. So much so that at the age of 16, James was so unhappy, he attempted suicide by hanging himself with a sheet. He failed and resigned himself to an unremarkable life. As James got older, his resentment for his brother grew. James had flunked out of college after two years, while Leonard earned a degree in electrical engineering and excelled in sports. To make matters worse, Leonard married and went on to have eight children with one of his few girlfriends that James had ever had. <laughs> Leonard had a great job in general with General Electric, unlike James, who at age 41 was unemployed and living with his mother. Wow. <laughs> on top of it all, <laughs> James owed money to both his mother and brother from whom he had borrowed large sums after losing what little he had in the stock market crash of 1930, 1973. Sorry. James's mother, Charity, was frustrated with her son's inability to keep a job and his constant drinking, and she threatened to evict him. The threat seemed to have been what finally set James over the edge. A month before the massacre, James inquired about silencers for his weapons while purchasing ammunition. His behavior in general became more unusual as he neared the breaking point. On March 29th of 1975, so James's birthday, witnesses reported seeing him shoot at cans with a 375 Magnum along the banks of the Great Miami River in Hamilton. Afterwards, James went out to the 19th Hole Cocktail Lounge, where he spoke to the bartender Wanda Bishop, a 28-year-old mother of five. Wanda would later recount that James told her he was frustrated with his mother's demands on him and his impending eviction, and that he needed to solve the problem. According to Bishop, James stated that his mother had complained that if he could afford to buy beer seven nights a week, he could afford to pay rent. I feel like that's pretty accurate. Right? (laughs) Rupert left the bar at 11 p.m., but returned a little while later. When Bishop saw him re-enter the bar, she jokingly asked if he had solved the problem, to which he replied, no, not yet. James stayed at the bar until closing time at 2.30 a.m. On Easter Sunday, March 30th of 1975, so the very next day, Leonard, his wife Alma, and their eight children, ranging ages 4 to 17, came to see their grandmother at the house on Minor Avenue. James stayed upstairs sleeping off his night of drinking while the children enjoyed an Easter egg hunt in the front yard. Around 4 p.m., James woke up 
<laughs> loaded his 375 Magnum, two 22 caliber handguns, and a rifle, then headed downstairs. His mother, Charity, was preparing Sloppy Joes in the kitchen while conversing with Leonard Jr. and Alma. Most of the children were playing in the living room at this time. And as James entered the kitchen, he shot Leonard in the head, then shot his sister-in-law, Alma, killing her. And as his mother lunged towards him, he shot her once in the head and twice in the chest. His nephew, David, and nieces, Teresa and Carol, who were also in the kitchen. Well, I'm sure you can guess what happened to them. So sad. As blood soaked the floor, James turned the corner into the living room. One by one, James shot his remaining nieces and nephews, Anne, Leonard III, Michael, Thomas, and John. Most of the victims were shot in the head, but were also shot a second time to be sure they were dead. Jeez. The massacre took less than five minutes to complete. That's insane. <laughs> the Butler County coroner theorized that James had likely shot some victims more than once to prevent them from escaping. What? <laughs> Don't you fucking go anywhere. <laughs> Bullet to the head wasn't enough. <sighs> After spending hours in the house, James finally called 911 and said, there's been a shooting. When police arrived, he was waiting for them just inside the front door. James told police, quote, my mother drove me crazy by always combing my hair. <laughs> she talked to me like I was a baby. And she tried to make me into a homosexual. <laughs> Those dang moms. He must have been drinking gay. Bud Light beer or something. <laughs> Taste the rainbow. <laughs> I'm all for that rebranding, honestly. <laughs> Police could see bodies lying on the floor from the doorway, and they described the scene as a slaughterhouse. They stated that the only sign of a struggle was that there was a waste bin in the living room that had been tipped over. There was so much blood splashed about that it was dripping through the floorboards into the basement. Sure. Butler County Prosecutor John Holcomb called the shooting scene carnage. He stated, quote, It was so bad that when I went into the basement, you had to be careful because the blood would seep through the floorboards and it would drip on you. Oh my gosh. To this day, stains can still be seen on the wood. Why would you never replace them? <laughs> Because that's a logical thing to do. <laughs> uh, it gives the house character, I guess. <laughs> the murders shocked the small community and made headlines across the country. Those who knew James never believed that he was capable of such violence, especially at the magnitude of this particular massacre. By all accounts, neighbors considered their Ruperts a nice family. It's always the nice ones. <laughs> Dateline taught me that. <laughs> James was arrested and charged with 11 counts of aggravated homicide. He refused to answer any questions and was very uncooperative. He made it clear that he would plead insanity. Prosecutors actually believed that he planned to plead insanity because he thought that he could be quote-unquote cured and um, that would allow him to be released. And then he would be able to inherit $300,000. Oh, yeah, that's how that works, right? So the original trial for James was held in Hamilton. A three-judge panel found James guilty of 11 counts of murder and sentenced him to life in prison. However, a mistrial was declared, and a second trial was held in Finley, Ohio, which is about 125 miles north. As 
Um, it had just been decided that James couldn't get a fair trial in his hometown. So they moved it. The that second, yeah. <laughs> the second trial began in June of 1975, and prosecutors revealed to the courts of James' target shooting and statements about solving his problem. In July, James received a new sentence of 11 consecutive life sentences. James appealed, and a new trial was granted. On July 23rd, 1982, another three-panel judge found James guilty of two counts of first-degree murder for his mother and brother, but found him not guilty of the other nine counts by reason of insanity. How does that make any sense? I could see killing his mom, his brother, and his sister-in-law because that was his Mm ex-girlfriend, you know. And then maybe, like, the kids were just, like, reason of insanity, like, well, everybody else is dead. Probably take care Might of Might as ones. well. Yeah. <laughs> like, maybe after he killed those three, he, like, realized what he'd done and panicked yeah. and then killed the children. But, no. That he knew exactly what he was doing. Oh, yeah. He wasn't crazy. And they already said he wanted to inherit that money, which... He was taking out all the people. Yeah, you would still life. get life. You're just not going to be in prison. You're going to be in an insane asylum. So he was found not guilty for the other nine counts by reason of insanity, and he received one life sentence for each guilty count to be served consecutively. So he received two life sentences. As a result of a pending U.S. Supreme Court decision, the death penalty had been suspended in the United States between 1972 and 1976, so James could not be sentenced to death for his crimes. Of course. In the wake of the murders, the 11 victims were buried in Arlington Memorial Gardens in Cincinnati. And a year later, the house on Minor Avenue was open to the public and all the contents were sold at an auction. It was cleaned up, carpets were placed over the bloodstains that could not be removed, and it was rented to a family that was new to the area and had no idea of the horrifying events that occurred there. <laughs> so messed up. <laughs> Nobody told them. <laughs> Needless to say, they quickly moved out. The family claimed to have heard voices and strange noises that they couldn't explain. Lights would turn on and off, doors slammed, and they would hear thudding footsteps um, coming down the stairs. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) they were not the last to move in and quickly leave. A number of other families moved in and out of the house and did not stay for long. All of them reported sounds and voices that could not be explained. The house was abandoned for several years, but the last family that moved in reported nothing out of the ordinary. In June of 1995, at the age of 61, James was granted a hearing before the state parole board, but his release was denied. He received another hearing in April of 2015, at which release was again denied. His next hearing was set for February of 2025, but on June 4th, 2022, at the age of 88, James Rupert died from natural causes while incarcerated at the Franklin Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. So we did a little more digging into who else has lived in the Rupert house, and what we found was quite interesting. Dennis Snyder purchased the Rupert home in 1989 and lived there for 19 years before selling it to a woman named Cinnamon Baker. After Baker and her two small sons moved into the house, they would get knocks at the door, and people would ask, do you know what happened in your home? 
Baker states she didn't always know the answer. She was closing on the house in 2008, and her boyfriend's co-worker asked about a man named James Rupert. He sounded familiar, so she looked him up on Google. The first result was her address, 635 Minor Avenue. And this is where she had learned about the slaying that took place in her soon-to-be home. Baker said that she couldn't believe what she saw online. Photos of the house she was days away from buying, but instead of running the other way, Baker wanted another look at the house. She stated, quote, They had to fix something in the basement before they closed on the home, so they had to go back anyways to check on it. There were no bullet holes or strange odors. Baker says the home was like any other home. It had history. This one just happened to have history that everyone knew about. As for the bloodstains, they are still there. Baker states, it's just proof that it happened. It doesn't seem to bother Baker that six people were murdered where her two kids eat breakfast. And she's not phased that five children were shot where she sits to watch television before bed. As far as I can find, Cinnamon Baker still lives in the Rupert house. I also found that in Ohio... If a house was the scene of a homicide, the state categorizes that info as a psychological stigma, meaning a real estate agent doesn't need to tell you about it because the Ohio Code states that psychological stigmas are not material fact. However, if asked, the agent does have to disclose the information. I think that that's something that should just be disclosed, but that's my personal opinion. I feel like that's how it is in other states. But I'm, I'm not positive. But I'm also the type of person that would be like, fuck yeah, somebody was murdered in this house. Like, I'm buying the house that would because be a I already. Fact. I, I researched it and I knew that yeah. people were killed in that home. Save your breath. I already. Know. And I know that sounds really fucked up to anybody who's listening, but come on, you don't start a true crime podcast. If <laughs> you don't like a yeah, little murder. Don't like a little murder. <laughs> So another odd fact that I found while deep diving into this case is that the Rupert house is diagonally across the street from the duplex where Tina Ma was savagely murdered 21 years later. I did not know that. So for those of you that don't know the Tina Ma case, Tina's boyfriend had used 19 knives and a meat cleaver to murder and dismember the girl. But we'll cover that story in another episode. So that's our case this week. If you like what you heard, you can join our Facebook group under Thick Thighs and Murder Vibes Community. Like, comment, and share the shit out of it to all of your friends. Go show your support. Also, stay tuned as we will have a Patreon that you can subscribe to in the near future. We're still getting that up and running. Um, That is where you can get extra content, video footage, and some sidecar episodes. Come back next week and we will have another juicy case for you when we cover Deadly Discharge. Thank you all so much for listening. Bye. Bye.